I remember the first, like 12 months out and first coming back and I'm at this first thing and I'm working hard and my leg is killing me, right? And I mean, you're, you're just a mess. Your body doesn't work anymore, right? Everything's messed up and I'm going and I, I just, I said, I, I gotta go sit down. Like I'm in so much pain. The coach come over and says, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you don't have the guts to make it. Yeah, and I was like, that killed me in that moment. Like I had just spent 12 months in a cast and in a brace in pain on crutches and for someone who mattered to me telling me that I didn't care in that moment that's not what I needed hey this is John O'Sullivan founder of the Change in the Game project and author of the book Change in the Game parents guide to raising happy high performing athletes and giving you sports back to our kids and I'm super excited to be on the Heads and Tails podcast Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm excited to bring you John O'Sullivan, who is the founder and CEO of Changing the Game Project and is the author of Changing the Game, The Parent's Guide to Raising Happy, High-Performing Athletes and Giving Youth Sports Back to Our Kids, which is the number one best-selling youth sports book on Amazon. Uh, John played college soccer at Fordham University and then played professionally before becoming a Division I soccer coach at the University of Vermont. So, John, thanks again for coming on the show today. And we're going to talk a lot about the sports environment and its effect on today's athletes. So uh, can you start off by kind of talking about what was the trigger that made you want to change the game in the first place? Sure. And, and first of all, thanks for having me on. I, I, I love what you're doing and the work that you're doing, I think, is, is so incredibly important. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to discuss that later, uh, why I believe that uh, from some personal experiences, for sure. But um, yeah, so, you know, I, as, as you mentioned, right, I was a, a, a player and then a coach for many years. And I was just getting a little bit tired of, of the environment. And, and I felt like, as uh, an organizational director, when I was looking for resources to educate and, and help parents and educate my coaches, not just on, uh, you know, how to be a better soccer coach, but how to connect with kids and communicate, and motivate and inspire. Um, it just wasn't out there. And so I, I ended up um, sort of had, uh, I probably had a couple of trigger moments, but one of them was certainly sitting watching my daughter, who was about six at the time, play and, you know, watching this great six-year-old soccer game and all the happy, smiling kids and the funny plays and the positive coaches. And then right next door, there's a 10-year-old boys game and the coaches are screaming, the parents are screaming and everyone's yelling at the 13-year-old referee. And I'm sitting there thinking <laughs> to myself, like, you know, does anyone on my field want to be there in a couple of years? Like, why, 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 why do we go from this to that? Right. Um, why, why do we lose the plot? And so as I started throwing this idea out to people, everyone kept saying, well, the problem's too big. You can't do anything about it. But I never had anyone say, oh, that's a dumb idea in terms of what you're trying to teach. Everyone said, 
oh my God, you need to come to my school. You need to come to my club. Um, and so I, I realized that there was just a, a big need for this out there, a need for an outside voice who could come in and, and give, you know, who, who had sort of been done the athlete route, done the coaching route, done the educational route and, and could give a good, well-balanced perspective, right. um, for, to coaches and parents. And so, yeah, it's taken off like wildfire. Yeah, it's interesting how you have, like, the essence of what, like, sports and fun, like, is. And then, like, yeah, like you said, on the next field over, you have exactly what makes kids want to quit sports and, you know, makes people miserable. So it's funny. And, what, you, yeah. and, what's, and what's scarier, Kevin, is this idea that at some point sports stops being about enjoyment, that it stops being about playing with joy. And, and it couldn't be further from the truth. And, you know, you, you talk to professional athletes and usually they retire when the the joy of playing is no longer, you know, no longer outweighs the, you know, the work or the injuries or, or the whatever it takes to, to stay at that level. Right. But they talk about joy and, and how it brings them joy and how it's not really work. Yet we have you know, a lot of parents and coaches thinking that, well, this is competitive 13 year old hockey. This isn't about fun. This is about enjoyment. This is work. And, and, and they couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. This is the A team, not the B team. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So can you kind of like set the tone for what the current, you know, or describe the current youth sports environment that you sought out to change, like in terms of like maybe safety, performance, and fun? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, for, first of all, the statistic that's always bantered around is, you know, that we lose 70% of children to organize sports by the age of 13. So we lose millions of kids, oftentimes before they ever really get a trained coach. Um, and, and, you know, what we've done in, in the United States certainly is we've dedicated our facilities and our resources to this upper percent. And all of a sudden there's no place for kids just to go play pickup basketball or, you know, right. just to go skate or yeah, even if they uh, just wanted to play for fun, like it's not available because all these, you know, structured programs are in place that take up the fields you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, but I mean, you speak to people who run a soccer clubs and and if they run a a pickup night, a free play night, very few people come because people have stopped valuing free play. You know, they they, they think that unless you're working with your private trainer, unless there's a coach there, that kids are wasting their time when in fact, you know, I'm like, you know, go to a skateboard park and tell me that those kids aren't getting better. Right. Yeah, and yeah. there's no coach out there telling them like how to do stuff. You just like figure it out as you go. Yeah, and they help each other and right. all that sort of stuff. And there's no fear of making a mistake that some adult's going to yell at you. Now, obviously, you know there there are negative aspects to that environment um, as well. But you know, from a pure learning or skill acquisition standpoint. You know, free play, you know, has huge advantages. And um, and so, you know, it was really sort of, you know, where, where can we put some of that type of stuff back in the environment, but more so help people recognize that 99.9% of young athletes are never going to make a living doing their sport, right? right. So. So this idea that it has to all be about um, 
uh, you know, focused on playing in college or whatever, it's just not, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Why can't we develop people and use sport to teach character and resilience and all these other things that really, really matter? And if they happen to have the freak genes and, and the luck, you know, like in, in your case, right, where you had an injury, right, right? there's a certain amount of luck to avoid those injuries at the right times and all that. Um, you know, if they have all those things that they might be a college or a pro athlete, you know, giving them the character to support their advancement in sport is, is never a bad thing. Yet so many organizations only look at the technical skills or the tactical piece or the tournaments one. And, and they they just turn their backs on the personal development side of sports. And I think that's really sad. So like through your research, like where do you like at what point in time did this kind of like dynamic start where it kind of went from being this like free play, you know, arena to being this structured area where it's like the fun is the last priority? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that you could put a, you know, a date on it and say, well, on this date, this happened. There's a really interesting book by a woman named Julia Lithcott Haynes called How to Raise an Adult. Um, and, and she kind of puts a date on, I think it was like 1984 or 94, I forget which one, where the word playdate entered the Webster's Dictionary, where all of a sudden when kids were going to get together to play, it had to be scheduled, organized. And as soon as it was organized and parents said, well, you know, if we're going to organize this, we might as well pay some professional to run it. And all of a sudden just, hey, let's meet at the park disappeared. Right. But, you know, we, we live in this world where, uh, right, we, we compare how we feel inside to how everyone else looks on the outside, right? No one posts on Facebook their child's eighth place ribbon, right? right? It's just, oh, hey, we won the tournament. So you go through your feed and you're like, oh my God, look at how all these other kids are doing. What's wrong with my kid? And and so there's this, I think, the the overwhelming emotion that a lot of parents feel, and these are great people who love their kids, is fear. Fear that my kid's getting left behind. Fear my kid won't go to the right school. And this is obviously not just in sports, but academics as well. Yep. And when when you're when you're driven by fear, it's very hard to take the long view of, hey, we've got eight years to figure this sport out. You know, we start thinking like in the next eight weeks, if we don't make the team, this is a disaster and a waste of time and money. Right. So speaking of fear, I was watching your TED talk and you had like a interesting, you know kind of talk about fear and how kids are kind of afraid to make mistakes and stuff like how can parents and coaches kind of put value on failure like how would you talk to parents or coaches and help them embrace the power of failure yeah I mean it's a great question and you know I, I usually say to parents for wherever you are now in your career or your personal relationships or whatever if you're at a good place was it some direct line there? Chances are it wasn't, right? You had adversity. You had setbacks. You didn't get that promotion. Your first company failed. Your, your, you know, you, you broke up with three girlfriends before you found the one. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's not a straight line. And, and so when we protect our, our children from adversity and, and failure, right, then, then we're stealing opportunities to learn. Now, I think it's a gray area, um, and I get lots of emails and, and questions about this from from parents who are saying, okay, 
we're not sure if our kid just has a bad coach or a dangerous coach, right? right? That, you know, the fact that your kid isn't playing his favorite position or wearing his favorite number or is being pulled out of his comfort zone, um, and doesn't get to goof off and practice anymore. doesn't mean you have a bad coach. Right. That's a great coach, right? But someone who bullies, someone who demeans, obviously physical abuse in any way, shape, or form, these are dangerous situations. And so, and so I, I think as, as, as parents and as, as people, we, you know, we're always sort of evaluating and evaluating and evaluating and trying to decide, you know, is, is this just adversity or is this dangerous? And we want to seek out adversity, and we want to protect our kids from danger. So where is that line drawn? Like, you know, that's like a fine line, I think, for a lot of coaches. So in in your definition of, you know, what that looks like, where where is that line? I think it's always moving. It's not it's not static, you know. And And a coach who, for you is exactly what you need might not be what I need at that time in my life. Right. Right. You, you needed the kick in the butt and I needed a a hug because everything had fallen apart at my house, you know? And, and so what great coaches do is, is they coach the person, not the sport. You're not a football coach. You're, you're Kevin's coach, you're John's coach. And you try to give each of them the football piece, but then you need to get, you know, the more you can give it to them as they need it, right? The, the better off they're going to be. Right. And yeah, someone coming back from an injury needs something more than, you know, I, I remember I had a double leg fracture when I was, uh, 17 years old. I remember the first, uh, 12 months out and first coming back and I'm at this first thing and I'm working hard and my leg is killing me. Right. And I mean, you're, you're just a mess. Your body doesn't work anymore. Right. Everything's messed up. And I'm going and I, I just I said, I, I got to go sit down like I'm in so much pain. The coach come over and says, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you don't have the guts to make it. Right. Yeah, that, and I was like that killed me in that moment. Like I had just spent 12 months in a cast and in a brace in pain on crutches. And for someone who mattered to me telling me that I didn't care in that moment, that's not what I needed. Right. Whereas the kid next door to me who was just lazy, he needed that. <laughs> yeah. So like in your coaching experience, you have, you have 20 plus years of coaching experience, uh, I, I saw. So how did you approach athletes who were injured? Well, you know, certainly, you know, they, they all say, right, are, are you injured or are you, are you hurting, hurt? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you hurt? And those are two different things. And so I think I've always been very good at differentiating those two. Um, and, and then I think, you know, the, the role of a, a coach is always, you know, to take an athlete to a place where they've never been before and wouldn't get there on their own. So you're always kind of pushing that line. Right. But when, when, you know, as I've gotten older and more experienced, I think I've gotten better at the decision of, is this the time to push it? Right. And maybe when that kid is always pulling out of, uh, you know, some fitness activity saying, Oh, I can't breathe or whatever, that it's time for a conversation that until you figure out how to do that, you're not going to be able to get this. Um, and balancing that with, you know, the Friday night tykes culture of making nine year olds puke in 104 degree heat. 
Right. That's just dumb. I mean, that's just criminal. Something in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's the black and white is easy to spot. It's always that, that, that middle piece, but certainly as an athlete who has had quite a few injuries myself, I think I'm pretty sensitive to those, to the psychological needs of those coming back from a long-term injury, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen in your, in your experience as well, um, you know, the, the ACL injury. And after six months, you're cleared to play. And so kids come back thinking, oh, well, I'm cleared. So I'll, I'll just, you know, pick up right where I left off. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite work like that. Work. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. And so those are the kids that you really have to walk them through that next six months and say, you know what, we're going to get you back to where you were. And then you'll see the improvement and you'll gain your confidence back as well. All right. So this kind of idea of like customized coaching, I, I think it's interesting because we've all had coaches who definitely were good coaches and like X's and O's type guys um, who really knew the sport. But in mm-hmm. terms of like knowing the athlete personally and like what got them going and what set them back, they didn't have as good of a grasp on that. So like mm-hmm. what what advice do you have for coaches to be able to offer that kind of like customized coaching for their athletes? Like how do well, you uh, – I guess like how do you gauge uh, an athlete on one end of the spectrum like he needs a kick in the ass and the other one like kind of let him be here and give him a hug like that kind of thing? <laughs> Yeah. And and so first of all, a coaches have a growth mindset about that area of coaching, right? How many coaches do you meet who have said, that's just not me. That's not my personality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like, so you expect your kids to be open and learners, but you're not going to be a learner. Right. Number two, recognize that things like being a better communicator, being a better listener, Um, you know, making eye contact, making personal time for kids, working on the connection piece, working on the trust piece, um, being more consistent. These are skills just like becoming better at the four, three defense. These are things you can learn and and read on and, and focus on. And so have an open mindset to, to this idea that, you know what, I am not a good listener. I need to, I need to listen better. And I'm going to work on that side of my things. You know, there's nothing wrong with telling your athletes, you know what, I, 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 I lost the plot there myself. I'm going to be better. That inspires kids like, oh, this is an adult who just admit that he's not perfect. Right. Um, I guess it's OK for me to not be perfect, too. So so, you know, it's it starts there. Now, I have a friend in, in this space. His name is Bruce Brown. He's you know, um, in his seventies now he's been speaking to coaches and athletes for years. And, you know, he reiterated this story to me once how he was giving a talk for, you know, that a national basketball association of coaches, you know, their big convention and sitting in the front row taking notes was 91 year old John Wooden. Now, if John Wooden, who hasn't coached in 20 years is in the sitting in the front taking notes, you can take notes too. Right. <laughs> End that's, of story. Done. That's a great you story. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so from your coaching career, when you think back, was there any moments or moment when you did something or like interacted with an athlete that is not currently like in alignment with what your, your thinking is today? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. My gosh. You know, certainly <clears throat> when I was still playing professionally and I, and I started coaching then, I was a very I was very competitive. So I would jump into practice and God forbid my team was losing the five aside game. Right. I, I, I would get on my teammates. I would get on kids. You know, they, they laugh about it now. Twenty years later, they're like, coach, you were so competitive. It was ridiculous. You know, um, you know, but but I didn't realize the impact of my words, you know, and, and you, every athlete can probably think back to a halftime talk, uh, something that, you know, my friend Jerry Lynch and I would call this rule of one that that this one athlete, one comment, one time, how it can change everything. And and you don't get to pick and choose what your kids remember and what they forget. So you better be pretty darn intentional about what you say. And when I realized that, I was much more careful. Or if I did, in the heat of the moment, say something that I regretted, I made sure I reached out and said, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. That didn't come out the right way, and, and you, didn't, you didn't deserve that in that moment. Even though you didn't maybe weren't playing hard or you did something silly, you know, I could have found a better way to say that to you. Um, but early on, I said plenty of things, and I, I do. I thanks for making me cringe at at, at the <laughs> players I lost. <laughs> uh, do you have any like specific examples? And like the only reason why I ask, and like I, I'm really <clears throat> glad that you were vulnerable enough to admit that you know you did make some mistakes early on in your career. Because when I think back to my athletic career and the impact that my coaches had on me both positively and sometimes negatively is exactly what you said. It's like, I think coaches sometimes underestimate how hard kids like listen or how attentive kids are to er and hang on every word that they say, you know, like mm -hmm. whether they were kidding or not, like when you're 14, 15, 16, like we think that everything that you say is like a hundred percent serious and we don't think it's a joke. So yeah, yeah. I, I tell stories constantly on the podcast. I'm not gonna bore the listeners to talk about the same story over again. But it, yeah, I think that's great. What you said is that when you're a coach, to be intentional about what you're saying and to understand that there's implications and how you're being interpreted by these kids, you know, might vary from individual to individual. Definitely. And so, okay, I will. I will share a story for you. And I don't think I've ever shared this one publicly because it's it's kind of a hard one. But uh, this is back. This is you know back in the late '90s or early 2000s. I was you know in my late 20s or so and 30 years old, whatever that was. And um, I was coaching a 16-year-old boys team, and we were a state champion team, and we were at a, you know regional tournament, and we were losing, and we weren't going to advance. And there was a kid on the team, and I was just giving it to him from the sidelines. I didn't think he was working hard, and I didn't think he was competing. And I'm just, uh, I'm just hammering him and one of his teammates on the sideline says hey coach you know you know that that kid he goes you know he's probably not going to play again next year this is probably his last game um do you want him to feel like you're making him feel right now and it just floored me because the result of that game didn't matter right we weren't advancing in this tournament right and i never thought about what if this what if I'm his last coach or, or what if I'm, um, you know, what if this is his final memory of playing soccer and, and it just killed me, you know, and, and that was, you know, one of those first kind of transformational moments in my life as a coach where I started really thinking about, holy cow, you know, and what did I want as a player? 
because it certainly wa- wasn't what I was giving in that moment. <laughs> Is that because you think you acted that way because that's how you were coached? Uh, to an extent, but I think, uh, you know, I don't think you can, uh, you, you know, remove all accountability from yourself because you had a bad coach. Like, right. okay, I knew I had a bad coach, so I yeah. could do something, do different. yeah. something differently, not blame them for, you know, that's yeah. like yeah. You know, being a bad dad or a bad husband <laughs> because you had a bad dad. Like, you know, my right. God, take some responsibility for your own decisions. Yeah, that's the, the definition of a leader, right? Just extreme ownership as, as Jocko Willick yeah. would say. Yeah, one of my favorite books, yep. Yeah, it's I think about it all the time when I'm just like going throughout my day and like things are like people are blaming stuff and I'm like no like that's on you like you just got to own it if you're going to be a leader but I I digress um so let's talk about uh the sports specialization world today and you were a coach and were you kind of at the forefront of when all this and you know were you coaching when sports specialization started to, to become a thing and like do you think that it makes athletes know better athletes or like when they were coming to you at the college level were they better or maybe not as talented you know every everything uh, again we'll go back to this everything every generalization begins and ends at the individual level right okay so for some kids sports specialization is the right thing interesting and it's what you know and, and it's what they want Right. It's their path. They're not being forced into it. And and I I say with the caveat of that doesn't mean that you don't do movement and strength training. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do yoga. It doesn't mean you don't take time off. Right. So there's ways to be that I'm only going to play travel soccer, but I'm still going to become an athlete. Right. That's it. Now, prior to the age of 12, the evidence is really, really clear that that's not a great idea, that a multi-movement experience when you're young is good and that there's transferability of skills across sports. So, you know, playing some soccer actually can make you a better basketball player because of your awareness of of, of people on the court slash field. Um, but, you know, the evidence is certainly <clears throat> becoming more and more clear um, as injuries rise and, and the ages that kids are specializing are, are, are pushed lower and lower, you know, and we can look at this in terms of like specific injuries, like Tommy John surgery. Yep. That's where, a popular you know, one. Yeah. Just where James Andrews, you know, says, okay, years ago, you'd never see that in a kid before college. Then it was high school. And now you've got 11 or 12 year olds, right. Who are throwing more innings than major leaguers. And that's a terrible thing. And, and, and so um, you, you can measure the incidences and the ages of that injury and go, okay, there is a problem here with too much of this, especially in a one-sided sport like baseball where you're throw with the same arm or whatever. Um, so, you know, and then you go to the burnout issue. Kids who only play one sport are more likely to burn out and quit. Um, they're more likely to develop psychological issues. I, I actually... Um, this would be, you know, in, in your area of expertise as well. I mean, I talked to a guy who runs like a wilderness therapy program, you know, and he's got, you know, kids who have used drugs and kids who have, um, uh, you know, abusive relationships, whatever it is. But he said he has an amazing amount of athletes who their sport came to an end because of an injury, because of something, and they can't deal with it. 
Yeah. And here they are in a three month wilderness therapy program because, because they got a concussion and couldn't play football anymore. Like that was the trigger event because their whole identity was, you know, I am not Kevin, the guy who does football and all these other things, but I'm Kevin, the football player. Yep. That was right? me. Yeah. That, that, and that was you. And you talk very openly about that. And so I think specialization can lead to that as well. It's far more likely that your kid's going to identify with themselves as the football player or the soccer player if that's all they do versus, hey, that's that's just something I do. It's not who I am. Right. I've never heard of, you know, with all the talk about sports specialization, I've never heard anyone kind of put it the way that you did. So I appreciate you giving kind of both sides of the spectrum. It's, it's really cool. Um, while we're on the topic of injuries, um, what injuries did you, and I know we talked about your broken leg, but what other injuries did you come across throughout <laughs> your career and, you know, how were you affected by those? I'm, I'm one of those few athletes that I think I had an orthopedic on retainer. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm up to a, a recent ski accident a couple of years ago where I broke seven vertebrae in my back. Has, oh my has, God. Has, uh, I, I'm up to 24 broken bones. So <laughs> that's like a record. Uh, it, it, it's up there. People are like, are you like a motocross racer or something? Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, between soccer, skiing, and mountain biking, I've I've found plenty of ways to beat my beat myself up. But you know, I've I've 45, and you know, I still ski and I I still bike and things like that. And I mean, honestly, you know, I, I do it uh, a lot of yoga. Yoga has helped me so much. Can you know keep my, you know, my movement and my flexibility and, and my strength, uh, it makes a huge difference for me. How often do you do that? Not yeah. enough. Oh, yoga. <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I did it four days a week. I, I try to, I try to do it at least two. I usually depends on the time of the year, you know, when I set aside time in the winters and if it doesn't snow, I I'll go do yoga. And if it snows, I'll go ski. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so when you were injured, like how were you affected mentally and emotionally, maybe like early on in your soccer career versus like, how do you handle that kind of adversity now? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly for me, my, my really, my first injury and the big one was at, you know, age 17 or so tib fib fracture. And that was the first, you know, significant time off out of the game. It's always a pretty looking um, one too. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, happened during a game and all that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I remember initially feeling very sorry for myself, feeling very much like why me? Yeah, I remember how much it bothered me to see other people who were healthy, who didn't care. Right. And I would have given anything to be out there playing and I couldn't. And then you look at people who are out there playing and they just didn't take advantage of that opportunity. But I also remember very early on, when I went to like the first, you know, day early of rehab, I think just to learn how to walk with crutches, right? They, you know, I'm in this thing and there, you know, there's people there who are paralyzed from the waist down. There's people there with catastrophic injuries. I remember someone on like the balance beam bar whose legs didn't work trying to walk through there and they urinated all over themselves. And even at age 17, I was mature enough to say, holy cow, you know what? I really don't have it that badly. Right. Like, like this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to get over this. Um, they're not. Um, so, so there was that. And then, 
You know, I mean, again, I've, you know, these injuries have stretched over a period of, you know, 15 years or so where, where, um, you know, now I'm just, you know, obviously when you break your back, like that doesn't feel good. Um, How'd you do that? I hit a rock skiing. Like a a huge rock? (laughs) Yeah, I I hit, I hit a rock under the snow, went over the handlebars and and back first into a rock. So that'll um, do it. That'll do it. Yeah. So, um, you you know, so things like that, like a, there's obviously the the pain. And then for me now it's more of like a frustration, like "Ah, really did I just do that to myself? You know, that type of thing, um, is, is, uh, obviously a, a part of it. I'm not coming back from an injury now to play my season. So there's a sort of, there's not the, um, timeline of oh god i gotta get back (laughs) right so for a guy who broke 24 bones in his body do you think that it was i can't believe i just admitted that publicly (laughs) to the world (laughs) that it was the do you you think that it was the style of athlete that you are you know because like when i think back to my career in football the small short career that it was i feel like it was shortened because of the way that i played like i had zero regard for my body I was all about the bigger, faster, stronger, big hits, like that kind of thing. So do you think that your style of athlete led to those injuries? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, I was always very, like, again, very competitive and, and competed hard. Um, <clears throat> you know, you look at, you know, so many injuries are a matter of an inch here, an inch there you know, a half a second here, a half a second there. So, you know, not like football, right. Where, you know, I was the guy on kickoffs who broke the wedge, right. I didn't play football, you know? So I think there's a minimum amount of aggression that everyone who plays a sport at any level, you have to play with that or you will get hurt. Right. So, and then there's recklessness and I don't think I was ever reckless. And I certainly wasn't a player who ever went and tried to hurt someone. Um, you know, uh, hard tackle was great. I was never, uh, you know, I'm going to go out and break that guy's leg, especially since I'd been through it and wouldn't wish it on anyone. Yeah. Um, so when you were as, as not even as a coach, I guess just with your experience and that of, with what you do now with the changing the game project, you know, what advice do you have for injured athletes? You know, first off just seizing ending injuries and then maybe second career ending. Well, starting with the, the yeah the season ending, you know, it's oftentimes in those sort of early mid-teen years where a kid gets a bad injury and they're going to have time off. That that then they start considering quitting, right? And and so that's often a thing that leads kids to say, you know what, I'd rather do something else. And so I think you know advice for parents and coaches with those athletes is sometimes if they're teetering on the edge, just say. How about this, right? How about you rehab and you get back to where you were and then you can quit, right? So get back to where you were. Because yeah, so oftentimes yeah. that, that, you know, those kids feel like I'm so far behind now and, and I used to be good and now I'm not, now I'm bad. And you say, get back to where you were because you were good, right? And then when they get back to where they were, their confidence comes back and they see the improvement again and oftentimes they'll keep going. And so that's all it's fun my, again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun again. Right. Versus frustrating. And, and so I, that's all is my advice for parents. 
helping a kid who's struggling coming back from an injury. Let's make a commitment to get back to where you were and the day that you feel like, all right, I'm where I was when I did my knee in. Well, let's talk about, okay, you want to keep going or not? And most kids at that point will say yes. But if you let them at the low of the low make a decision, it's oftentimes not a good one. Interesting. Yeah. Then the other, you know, the other one, a career ending one, I mean, I think these are ones where depending on, on, on the, the kid and the person, you know, you have to evaluate, you know, is their life full without this sport or is it now empty? And if it's empty, like that's when you, a good time to, to bring in professional help. And I think sometimes, you know, we look at, you know, psychologists are only for when we're sick, but there, there are performance enhancers. And I think that's where, you know, kids can be in trouble or even adults is, is when something that they define themselves by is no longer a part of their life. And you even see it with pros who, who retire, not because of an injury, they're just old and, and, and they deal with it as well. And so I think, um, just being really cognizant of, of, of those athletes and looking for the depression and, the um, other types of issues. And is there a way to channel that energy that you used to pour into your sport into something else that can be positive and rewarding and, and, and you can be just as passionate about and, and helping them find that as well. I think that's huge. Right. And, and that takes time. And I use the sports psychologist to kind of help me through that transition as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. trying to put that stigma to rest that, you know, seeing, a psychologist or whatever is like, you know, taboo in, in the sports world. But, mm-hmm. um, so what was your transition to life after soccer? Like, well, you know, I, because of some injuries and stuff, I was done playing by the time I was 26 and I had an opportunity to go coach in college, uh, as an assistant coach at the university of Vermont. And so <clears throat> I was able to make that transition from player to coach, pretty, you know, it was what I wanted to do. I really enjoyed coaching, working with kids. I was passionate about it. So it, it, it honestly, from a psychological or a personal standpoint, it was not the least bit traumatic at all. Right. I think it was a lot harder when I quit coaching to start the changing the game project than it was quitting playing to become a coach because as a coach, you, you still think you're still really involved in, <clears throat> the day to day and and what you love. Um, so yeah, for me, that wasn't tough because I was smart enough to know that I was really passionate about sport and I loved working with kids and I loved teaching and I was pretty good at it. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, it didn't end without a plan forward. Okay. So you said that you, you mentioned that you struggled with that transition when you started the change in the game project. So what struggles did you encounter and kind of how did you overcome those? Well, I mean, quitting coaching before I knew that I was going to create the change in the game project, you know, that was kind of part of it. Like I, I knew I didn't want to do what I was doing in the coaching space anymore, but I didn't quite know what I wanted to do next. And so that period of transition was hard because I'm a, you know, I'm a hard worker. I like to work. I like to, do stuff and, and sort of not having that was, was a hard thing. Um, and then it just takes a long time to, you know, write a book and build a blog and build a following and build a speaking business and things like that. So that actually, you know, I, I felt 
you know, that I could contribute in a financial way to right. my family. Um, so that, you know, that was the hard part. Like I'm spending all this time and I haven't brought home a paycheck, but I'd still, I still, I feel like it's still worth doing. And my wife was an amazing support and all of that saying, you know, you do this for free, keep going, keep going, keep going. So yeah, that was, that was a big part of it as well. Uh, the, yeah, that's, that's great. And I didn't really kind of get into my groove either when I, until I started the podcast, like I was still in that I'm football, I'm, you know, Kevin, the football player, not like mm-hmm. Kevin, you have other things to offer to the world too. So, um, exactly, exactly. And it's a, it, once you find that, right. And, and you can approach it with the same passion, different in a different way that you approached football, right. You, you look forward to waking up in the morning and you got plenty, plenty to do <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, another thing that you mentioned in your Ted talk that I thought was interesting was the, like the parent coach dynamic, like when you coach your, your, uh, your kids. Mm-hmm. So what's your advice for people in that situation? You mean a parent who is coaching their own kid or yeah. parents coaching kids from the sideline? No, I mean like are, yeah. a, a coach coaching their own kid. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's, it's a very, um, I do it right. And I've coached my own kids and a lot of parents do. And so I always, you know, advise that number one, when practice is over, you got to take your coach hat off and just be dad again, or just be mom again. You know, that is probably the most important piece of advice for a lot of kids who get coached by one of their parents. Practice never ends. The game never ends. Right. And so, and so taking that off and, and and doing that number two, touching base with your kids, you know, before do you, would you like me to coach again? Or are you ready, you know, for someone else? And then respecting the fact that they might need space because especially as they get into their early teen years, right? You're, you're, you know, being hard in practice on your right back. And in your daughter's eyes, you're being hard on her friend who sits next to her and is going to be mad at her in school the next day. Yeah, and so it affects kids off the field in in I think a very important way. So it's very important for us as parent coaches to to recognize that and that sometimes it less is more in a way. Right. That's another thing I didn't think about too. Like, yeah, if you're coaching their friends, then you like yell at her friend, then yeah, it affects the dynamics at school too. Very much so. Uh, just before we wrap up the interview, I'm big on creating a culture of safety in sports. Um, just because I feel like athletes like myself and a lot of competitors like you, I'm sure never want to admit when they're hurt or they're afraid to because of whatever consequences they've conjured up in their mind. Um, so do you like, what do you think the foundational elements that need to exist in a culture of safety to like, what are the, the main pillars well, the number one, every decision is made based on the welfare of the athlete, not the welfare or the outcome of the game or the team, right? So, yes, this kid could keep playing but to help us win the game, but that is not a good decision right now. Um, number two, that those of us in charge of sports, whether it's youth or high school or college, but especially at the youth level, right? Like once you get into high school and certainly in college – there's usually professionally trained people there to help make those decisions. But if you're coaching 11-year-old soccer, that decision's on you. Um, so erring on the side of caution and also educating ourselves, right? We know, 
yeah, when we were kids 25 years ago and you got whacked in the head and you saw stars, we'd say shake it off, right? Now it's probably not a great idea, no. right? We know, we know better, right? We know better. It's not a stinger when you got knocked out, right? So like this is where um, we have to do better. And then number three, I think that at the professional level, they have to do better. Right. They have to make decisions based on player welfare because they are a model for how everyone else does it. And every time that there's a World Cup final in soccer and some player gets knocked silly and is back in the game and then sits down 10 minutes later because they're because they I mean, everyone on TV can see that they're not right. Yet they go back in. That sends a bad message to youths that, hey, you got to fight through it, and it sends a bad message to youth coaches as, oh, they did it in the World Cup final, why shouldn't I do it? So we need professional sports, you know, and, and I think football is doing, had no choice but to do a better job on it, but they have um, from, you know, heads-up training at younger ages to, um, you know, to in the NFL, and they have substitution rules that allow that to happen. You know, one of the challenges in soccer is when you're subbed off, you're off. So is there a way that when there's a head injury that that both teams could, you know, that, that you could add a short-term player or something like that to, you know, while you could adequately evaluate this, this person and make a decision whether, yes, we want a full-time sub or no, we don't. Um, you know, I think these are the type of things that if the pros did it great, um, youth would follow. And right now pros don't do it great. Yeah, those are those are great points that you you brought up, and I didn't even think about that with like the soccer thing. I didn't. I'm not a big soccer fan just because I no grew up perfect. playing football. Yeah, no one's perfect. No one's yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, my girlfriend loves soccer, and she. Yeah. <laughs> I always, well, some people are perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and meanwhile, I always uh, bust her chops about it. I'm just against the whole tying thing. I feel like they tie all the time whenever I watch soccer. Yeah, um, fair. Fair yeah she she always has the arguments against me though, uh, but. Just before, yeah, like before we wrap up, can you explain like the mission of Changing the Game Project and what services you guys offer, where we can like find you on social media and all that? Fantastic. Well, the best way to connect with us is just changingthegameproject.com. That's our website. That's the hub. Changing the Game Project on Facebook. I mean, we're getting close to about 70,000 people in that community now uh, at CTG Project HQ on Twitter. Um, you can find all those links though, just at changethegameproject.com. And we have a, a, a podcast now called way of champions with my friend, uh, Dr. Jerry Lynch, where we've been bringing in some phenomenal athletes and coaches talking about the stuff that we, that we do. And really our, our mission is to give, you know, you know, to help great, the great coaches out there coach the right way you know, to educate our new and our next generation of coaches and to work with parents, the vast majority of whom I think are good, sensible people, you know, to kind of take back control of youth sports and make it more about the needs and the values and the priorities of the kids playing instead of the adults running it. And if we can make our little dent in that world, then I feel like we're doing good work. That's, that's amazing. And I thank you for that. You know, when you, we're thinking of starting the change in the game project. And when you said, when people were telling you like, Oh, that's a huge feat. And you know, it's going to be like impossible to do for, you know, having the courage to take that step and, and really change the face of the sports world. And, 
you know, I, I hope that I could have some contribution like you, like you have uh, already. You, you already are, man. And I always say this, you know, people ask me and I'm sure they ask you, do you think you're making a difference? And I say, well, if one dad writes me and says, your work saved my relationship with my son, is that worth it? I think, I, I think it is, you yeah. know, and I think, you know, what, what you're doing and bringing awareness to athletes and injuries, that's kind of, uh, you know, the dark closet of sports right now. And, and the more awareness that we can bring to that. And I've had, you know, I've worked with players who have gone through, you know, TBIs and, you know, still to this day, you know, have to lock themselves in dark rooms for once in a while, you know, including a player who played for me, he got hurt after he was done playing with me, but still struggles with it. And, um, you know, another one who I helped start a nonprofit and everything in, in work that he's passionate about. And I see the struggles that they go through. And so your work is incredibly important. And even if it makes the difference for, for one athlete who says they're not alone, then, then you, you've made an important contribution. Thanks, John. Uh, last question. Uh, what is your personal definition of toughness? Oh man, I probably should have reviewed that beforehand and put some more thought in it. Uh, <laughs> or, or even how it's like evolved over time too. You know, like my definition when I was 17 is much different than what it is now. So, yeah, you know, I think I, I think toughness is having the courage to chase after what you believe in, even when it's hard. Right? Uh, that that that's that that would be it for me in a nutshell. To choose the the hard truth rather than the easy wrong you know choose the hard right rather than the easy wrong um to to you know push through on a bigger project when it would be easier to do a little one to make a big difference when it would be easier to just you know watch dancing with the stars and, yeah. and no difference at all yeah that was great i like that <laughs> not that i watched dancing with the stars that <laughs> popped into my head hey there's nothing wrong with that i think that's there's toughness for admitting that. that you watch uh honestly dancing with like the stars. I look at people who go on dancing with the stars and think I would not be mentally tough enough to do that and go dance uh, in front of the world. Because I remember just trying to dance at my wedding was hard enough. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, John, for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I love what you're doing with the Changing the Game Project. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much and love your work too, Kevin. Thanks, John.